Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we have two wonderful guests today. Uh, in the second half of this episode, we're talking with our friend Bridget Fetisi from Watkins Welcome. That is definitely a not safe for children conversation. She ex- explicit. The content isn't explicit, but she just has colorful metaphors. So just a warning about that. But I anticipate this first part of the conversation will be much more PG to the extent that our politics are. I'm talking to Gabriel De Benedetti from New York Magazine. He has written about politics and national affairs for Politico and Reuters. And he has commented on this election and previous elections. He has been a go-to for me for a long time. And he wrote a piece called The Alarming Calm of the Biden Campaign recently that we're going to ask him about. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. I would like to start just by asking you about the Iowa caucus. Is there anything surprising at all about last night to you? Yeah, I I was surprised by how people were acting surprised. I mean, the writing's been on the wall on the Republican side for a really long time. Obviously, there was some suspense about, you know, if Nikki Haley could do a little bit better than expected or if Ron DeSantis had some trick up his sleeve. But no, I mean, Donald Trump is running away with this primary and has been for a really long time. We've essentially been in a general election, I think, for a long time. And it's sort of surprising that more people haven't really internalized that. But in terms of the actual results, uh, no, Donald Trump won because, of course, he was going to win. He is the central fact of not just the Republican Party, but of all of our politics right now. And just for our listeners, in case you didn't fully catch up, at least of my reading, most recent reading, Trump won 51 percent of the vote. 30 points ahead of DeSantis, who eked out like a slim second place to Haley's third place. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that Trump, Haley, DeSantis, and Vivek each netted some delegates. I saw that he had one. Is that right? That's one right. Delegate? But then Vivek Ramaswamy did drop out last night. So, Oh, he did? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's essentially a three-person race. But, you know, I, I sort of have been hesitant to talk about it as a normal contest for such a long time because- as last night's results show, there's been so much put drama injected into the idea of who's going to come in second. But when you're 35% behind or 30% behind the person who's winning, it's not a real contest. Um, now, New Hampshire might be interesting. That's up next. You know, Haley has done pretty well there. So it's totally possible that she could get close, but potentially even if things get, get really spicy over the next week, beat Trump there. Um, and that, that'll send some messages. But, you know, the rest of the primary doesn't really look like it's shaped up in a way that's going to be helpful to her. She pretty clearly is unacceptable to at least 50% of the party, if not more. So, uh, you know, it's Trump's to lose. And last night really only cemented that and made it started to make it more official than it actually is, or than it seems. And as a political reporter, how have you been spending your time? So have you been traveling the country to some of these early states? Sure. You know, usually that's what I'm doing at this point, but I've been focusing more this time on what the incumbent, what President Biden's been doing, because I think that's a more interesting political story right now. Obviously, I'm paying close attention to what's happening in the early states, but I've been spending more time in swing states um, trying to understand what voters, you know, real real people on the ground feel um, the people who are going to make the decision next November, who are really going to be the people who make the final determination about the future of the country, because I've been operating under not the assumption, but the understanding based on the data that it seems entirely likely that this is going to be Biden versus Trump. And let's not, you know, pretend that that's not coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And, you know, maybe a window into that conversation is this piece called the alarming calm of the Biden campaign. You open this piece with this meeting in November in Chicago. I was actually supposed to be at this gathering because I was on the Obama, first Obama campaign. 
but I just gotten back from India, so I was exhausted, so I didn't go out there. But you describe a scene in which the Biden campaign is briefing these seasoned veteran operatives from Obama world. Uh, what did you learn in that room? Yeah, so you have to keep in mind a few things. This is a room full of people who were former Obama operatives, alums, who were in Chicago to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Obama winning. You know, wait, and and these people had been, you know, partying, having fun, and then on a early the next morning after you know a big night out, a hundred or so of them pile into this room to hear hear out the people running the Biden campaign, and and this is really like former colleagues and friends for the most part, because of course there are a lot of people on Team Biden who are also Team Obama. You know, neither Biden nor Obama was there, but it is top operatives, uh, and the Biden people basically gave the spiel that they've been giving all over the country, and it's to donors, to allies, to people who are nervous when they look at the polling numbers. And, you know, the upshot was, we know what we're doing. There was talk about what the electoral map looks like. The the overall point, the overall final point that I think was really hammered home was, this is going to be super close. I mean, the point that one of the top Biden people made that really shut the room up was, in 2020, you have to remember, yeah, Biden won and it, the top line numbers look pretty good, but it was essentially decided that election by 45,000 voters, fewer than 45,000 voters in a few swing states. And that really got the room focused. But, you know, there were a few people who were there who told me, yeah, it was a good presentation. We understand they know what they're doing. There were a lot of people there who sort of felt like, is this really the whole plan? Uh, and there was a lot of agitation because just that weekend was when a series of polls came out from the New York Times showing that you know, Biden was trailing Trump in some of the swing states and nationally. And that was when a big round of national freakout happened where a lot of Democrats, or at least people who don't like Trump, uh, started to realize, oh my God, this isn't a foregone conclusion at all. You know, Biden could pretty easily lose this thing. Yeah. You know, you, my boss on the Obama campaign was David Axelrod, who was, uh, for our listeners, Obama's former chief strategist, both within the campaign and um, senior advisor in the White House. And he has he waded into this around that period of time. It was that weekend, yeah. Gently suggesting that Biden not reconsider whether to run. And he has been more pointed since. He gave a, an interview over the weekend about this. And there's been a bit of a back and forth between him and Biden. I forget what Biden called him, some kind of expletive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so I promised this would be the PG section. But I was about to say. <laughs> but he, I would say I'm more in his camp right now than Messina's camp. And, and you flag something interesting, which is the, and Messina is the campaign manager for listeners for 2012, who's been more bearish on Biden's chances and kind of pushing back on what he calls the bedwetters, which is a phrase we should come back to because it's a phrase with historical import at this point. But That's right. my feeling, it, it's a skittish feeling because I just spent a month with a buddy of mine who works on the um, in the Biden pack when we were traveling together. Uh, and working remotely together. And the I'm like criticizing this decision to put forth Biden at the same time that these are all some of my best friends. <laughs> so it's like, it's a very, I would say it's even by uh, Axelrod, you know, even him, it's like this weirdly respectful conversation where people are a little careful, but the, the stakes couldn't be higher. You probably pick up on this, that people are like... Yeah, well, there are a few things that are like the, the underlying dynamics here that really make this complicated. And, I, and I, one of the reasons I was interested in starting the story with that scene is, you know, I've written extensively about the relationship between Biden and Obama themselves. Yeah, I wrote a book about that a few years ago, but also their worlds are... It's a pretty interesting dynamic because, you know, they, they're, they're a lot of friends. There's a lot of overlap there, but there's also a lot of tension about 
the way to approach politics. And Biden and Obama themselves certainly have that. And there's been reporting in the last few weeks about Obama himself being pretty concerned about the state of the Biden campaign. But as to the question itself of like why Biden is running again, from his perspective, you got to keep in mind, this is a man who's been talking about running for president openly since 1974. So the idea that 50 years into this, he's just going to wake up one day and say, you know what, guys, you know, you're right. I'm old. I don't need to do this anymore. (laughs) To him, he sort of looks at this and he's like, I've been a successful president. I'm the only person who's beaten Trump before. I keep getting, you know, doubt people doubt me all the time. Forget this. I'm a president's run for reelection. And to some degree, you know, it's really hard to argue with that. The other part of this is like, it's very late in the game. There's not a mechanism by which anyone else can challenge him in a serious, nationally relevant way. Uh, that would have had to happen like six or 10 months ago. And, and you know what? He got the support of all the people who would seriously be considered to do that. So the dynamics just aren't there for him to step aside, certainly. And he doesn't think he'll have to. But the case that people like Messina make is not just, you know, the top line, the economy is going to get better and continue to the, the states sort of can line up for him still. It's the central notion that people came back to again and again when I've been talking to them, which is, you know, regular voters, people who aren't that engaged. Well, first off, most people are not that engaged right now, the vast majority of people. And a lot of those people, including in the states that are ultimately going to decide this thing, simply haven't internalized that it's going to be Biden versus Trump again. And the, the Biden campaign or people around it have recently been talking about internal research they have that shows that fully three quarters of voters don't believe that Trump is going to be the nominee. Well, as you know, you and I just discussed, it's almost certain that Trump is going to be the nominee. And that's been pretty obvious for almost a year now. But people just haven't really like come around to the idea that we're in for the same thing again and that we could get the return of Trump. And partially that's because he's just not been the focus of daily news. He's not on Twitter anymore. You know, he's CNN doesn't take every one of his rallies live anymore. So in some some ways, the media has learned from its mistakes, but that has sort of shadowed or, or hidden the fact that in the Republican Party, I mean, the question of was the 2020 election stolen, things like that, those are litmus tests for the Repu- for Republican voters at this point. He's running away with that with that nomination. So that's why one of the some of the Biden people feel better than you might suspect, because from their perspective, you know, Biden's beaten Trump before. Republicans have done terribly on the ballot it's in, in 2018 and 2020 and 2022, all of when, you know, Trump was sort of the face of their party and Democrats have done a lot better than perspective or than that expected, excuse me, since the, the Dobbs Supreme Court decision to, to, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade. So every time voters go to the ballot box, they've been voting for Democrats since then. So the argument on the Biden side is you can have all these issues with him. You can think he's not a very good campaigner, but unless you have specific issues with the way that we're running things right now, which by the way, most people don't. Let's just look at what the politi- basic baseline political dynamics are. And that's an interesting case that they have to make. The, the issue, of course, is, you know, how far does that get you? We're still in a place where we have a split pol- political system and, you know, Trump could easily win. Yeah, I think it's like where people draw the line. And I think age is obviously a concern, but also I think the nature of incumbent advantage, I think, has changed. And if you, it, you know, you look at, for instance, approval ratings of presidents, it's harder to stay popular as a president. So I think a lot of these people are arguing from a, this historical record that is no longer true. And then they ignore other historical facts, like his approval rating, even taking into account how unpopular modern presidents are, is lower than anybody save Carter, right? So it's like, there's not a lot good happening there. And 
he himself is contradicted, as you point out in your piece. Like he gave a speech at this uh, fundraiser in Boston where he said, if Trump was on the ballot, he probably wouldn't run. And then he tried to clean up his remarks and he said, well, at least 50 other Democrats could beat Trump, which then begs the question as to why he's on the ballot. Put that all aside, because I agree with you, it's almost irrelevant because there's no stopping it now unless he decides not to run or you know, nature decides, uh, in which case like it would be chaotic, uh, to say the least. The question then is, well, what's the picture look like now? And one thing I'm left wondering, and you kind of organize your piece around these assumptions that the campaign is making around their electability and what their coalition could be. The, qu- the big question I have is, in order to win, he basically has to be in as good a position as he was last time or better, given that it was such a narrow victory last time. I think people look at it as this landslide, but actually it was not a lot of votes that decided this across the many states. What could possibly be better for Biden this time around, right? Because he's struggling with young voters like he didn't before. He's hemorrhaging certain voters of color, depending on which communities you look at. And he seems to be getting blamed for an economy that's doing decently well on a lot of metrics, which is really weird. So you could say maybe that's where he picks up some votes. And then you have the Trump factor, right? Which is January 6th hadn't happened before the last election and Dobbs didn't happen. So is that the answer really? Like the combination of those things? Well, that's that's definitely the baseline for the answer. The other part of it is the people around Biden believe that once most voters fully internalize again, that this is a binary, that it's, yeah, you may not like Biden, but the alternative is not not voting. The alternative is Trump, you know, in the way that they're presenting this. Their bet is that a lot of these voters who, as you correctly pointed out, have been really down on Biden, their bet is that those people are going to come flocking back to him, not necessarily because they like him, but because they view Trump as totally unacceptable. And, you know, even around Biden, there's a lot of acknowledgement that it's not okay that young voters are really down on him right now. It's not okay that a lot of voters of color are down on him. They, they acknowledge that these are issues, but they do believe that they're going to, you know, they're working now, but they certainly believe that they're going to be able to spend the next year working on getting those people back. You know, a big part of, of what they're thinking about now is also this question. Well, I don't want to put this in their, in their mouth. I'll say, I, I've been thinking a lot about this question that you talk about the, the question of incumbent advantage and, and how that's changed over time. I think it's pretty obvious that people don't see politician approval the same way that they used to. Historically, we're used to saying, well, if you're at 50%, that means that half the country likes you. But from the perspective of a lot of voters these days, you know, why would you approve of a politician unless you're a super fan? It's just not the way that politics is talked about or covered or thought about. So, you know, a lot of people around Biden compare this to this point in the 2012 election cycle when things didn't look that great for Obama. You know, he wasn't trailing in that many polls against uh, Mitt Romney at this point before Romney had sealed up that nomination. But, you know, his approval rating was pretty low. People thought the economy was pretty bad. Uh, And, you know, it's the same. There's a lot of parallels. Republicans were going crazy on Capitol Hill. That's what people wanted to talk about. All of which is to say, you know, their belief is that there are a lot of fundamental dynamics that are going to shift back into place over the course of the next few months. But like you said, you know, a lot has changed since 2020. The, The thing that is complicated for them, not to talk for too long on this one matter, but you know, like you said, what's going to be different since last time? There's been this assumption for a long time among many Democrats that Trump is going to be in a worse position than he was last time, simply because he's been out of office. He's only gotten more extreme. So far, that hasn't really borne out in the way that a lot of people were expected. Trump has basically kept his voters. There are certainly some people who don't like him, but it's not an enormous amount of people who have left him since 2020. It is not insignificant, especially when you talk about 
January 6th. And that's one of the reasons that Biden does talk about it so much and talk about the issue of democracy. But it's not as if there's been an enormous part of the party on the Republican side that has fled him. Now, that may turn out to be the case over the next few months if Biden really presses this matter. But his issue is that he has lost people who voted for him in 2020, and Trump has not at the same rate. So it's on Biden to make sure that those people come back to him, whether that's making a case, you know, I'm great, you should like me because I'm a good president, or you don't have to like me, but you just have to vote against Trump. You know, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the latter is the sure path to victory, given what Biden's dealing with right now. And the the Israel-Palestine issue, I think, kind of was was the big unpredictable issue so far, right? And I think that from where I'm sitting and, and the data seems to suggest this has caused him real problems with young people and voters of color in particular. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people were like, well, when the conflict subsides to the extent it will, which is a big assumption, then those voters will come back to Biden. I have to say the people I talk to in that world, I think that's true of some of those voters, but I would say that the, the sense of anger seems durable to me for a lot of those voters. And and a lot of those, you know, I had a friend who's a Yemeni American who told me the other day, he's like, I've never not voted and I've never not voted for a Democrat. And right now I don't plan to vote for Biden. And he was like, I think that this is going to be an issue for him in Michigan, for example, with the Muslim American communities. Totally. And and Georgia is another state where it's where they've seen it already be a pretty big concern. Like, like you said, there is some assumption that this is not going to be as top of mind in eight, 10 months or whatever, but that's not really a calculus that anyone's willing to bet an election on. I think this is a really hard issue for the campaign to deal with. And one of the reasons is that there are a lot of people around Biden who find that not just on this issue, but on many issues, he doesn't really get credit for a lot of the work that he's doing. Part of that is because he's not very good at selling it. Yeah. But for example, when you talk about you know this this particular war, you know he has hinted a few times and talked about how, you know, he has been trying to work behind the scenes to pressure Netanyahu to de-escalate. Now, obviously, he's not going to get a lot of credit from people who are very interested or who are focusing on this war, who find who have deep emotional ties to it for that kind of thing. But that is the sort of work that presidents do and, and do historically like to get credit, political credit for, you know, but talking about any of this stuff in terms of domestic politics is really difficult for him and it's always going to be fraught and he's just not getting, you know, people simply don't buy that that's that that is relevant in the face of, you know, American support for Israel. You know, this is pri- primarily young folks coming at this from a from the left perspective who are, who are dis- dissatisfied with him. But the other part of this is this. Well, to, to speak to this broader issue about him not getting credit in his mind and certainly in the mind of a lot of people around him for the work that he is doing, there is in some ways a, a echo of of the economy, of this issue of the economy, which is, again, the the parallels only go so far, but, you know, to the war concern, but the economy does seem to be doing better, you know, but Biden doesn't seem to get any credit. A lot of people say, I feel good about the state of my own wallet. I don't feel good about the state of the economy overall. And, And the reason I bring up this parallel is not, you know, again, it's an imperfect parallel, but the point is the White House does feel like they have a real case to make, but they've been befuddled that people simply don't seem to be internalizing or understanding or believing the case that they are making, you know, that their life might be better um, or that, you know, he might be doing some sort of good work on this war, but the overall picture is not in their favor and therefore they're not willing to side with him. So that's why at the end of the day, there is this calculus. You don't have to like me, but you have to understand that the alternative is Trump and that, you know, your life is not going to be better on the question of war in the Middle East or 
the economy uh, if it's Donald Trump. That's the case that they now have to try and pivot to make or that they're trying to. I think on the economy, there's at least some time there's there's this befuddling data that I've been talking about for a while that how the U.S. I'm sure you're familiar with this, like that perceptions of the economy in the U.S. don't track like the sort of significant economic indicators in the way they do in other countries. And the question is why? Theories are like, okay, is it the unique polar is nature? Yada. We've we've gone a hundred rounds on what the answer to that is. I have my theories, whatever. I do think that there's going to be some time for him on that. And historically, this has been true in the US where it takes some time for people to feel better about things. And I think this electorate, and I would count myself among them in terms of people like me and you who are been through a few crises, right? Like I just talked to Bethany McLean uh, a couple times the past few weeks and she wrote about Enron in 2000, then we had 2008, and then we had, you know, the COVID pandemic, and then we've, you know, we had the banking crisis. It's like you just have one crisis after another. And uh, I think people are now trained to think about catastrophe around the corner. But if there is a good six to nine month run ahead of us, obviously it won't hurt Biden. But Trump did a really interesting jujitsu move, which is really clever which is he's now saying that this is sort of Biden working off of the fumes of his quote unquote good economy, which is like right. a total Trump thing to say and really smart, actually. Well, and in some ways, you know, presidents always say the, the previous guy left me with a mess and the things and, the, you know, and then after they leave office, they sort of say like, well, that's actually just, you know, right. the work that I did. But but Trump, of course, takes much more active credit for it than, than, than most do. But I think, you know, one thing that a lot of folks who I talked with for this story and who in general are in the Biden orbit often say is, you know, at this point, well, it's not true now, but, you know, two or three months ago when I was writing this or, or really digging on the reporting of this, is that at this point in the last election cycle, no one had heard of COVID. Trump hadn't been impeached. Things change in presidential politics and they change a lot quickly. And that's definitely true. And, for you sure. know, we have no idea what the world is going to look like in five or 10 months. And I think that that's just an important point to remember. You know, we haven't talked about it yet, but Trump is... Facing lots of indictments, yeah, <laughs> ninety-one charges, you know, and and there's a lot of polling that shows that, yeah, every time he goes and and you know stands in front of a judge, his numbers go up among Republicans, but that's definitely not true among independents, and it's definitely definitely not true among Democrats. So it remains to be seen. You know, he went straight from Iowa to the courtroom today in New York. That's not really something we've ever seen before. We have no idea how this is going to play out. What's your sense? And this is probably a good topic for us to end on. What is your sense of? Like as you're looking at these cases, what's the chances of a conviction before election? And which, if you're ranking the cases in order of like the most likely to get a conviction before the election, and the least, what's at the top of your list right? That's now? really hard. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to like put them in an order necessarily. But what I would say is the one to pay the most attention to in terms of timeline and political potency, frankly, is the Justice Department's case about January 6th, because that's the one that, A, it appears to be on a timeline that might actually get, if not resolved, you know, we might have real developments by the election. A lot of the other ones, you know, the one in Georgia might last a really long time. Uh, it's unclear what the timeline of the one about, you know, the documents he took to Mar-a-Lago, for example. A lot of these things, you know, they're purposely trying to drag them out, the Trump people are. January 6th case, the, the federal one that the Department of Justice won, does look like it could, if not be resolved, you know, move along quite dramatically. And that's the one that people really understand immediately, because it's about overthrowing the government in a way that we all saw play out. You know, there's not 
really a lot of secret stuff there. I mean, obviously, we're going to hear more about the backstory, but that's the one that seems to be the most potent. And that's the one that people around him certainly seem to be the most concerned about. And that one, I think, is on the, the docket for the spring, right? Obviously, pending certain appeals. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and of course, the case might take a long time. But the, but the Justice Department has explicitly tried to say, we want to hurry this up. We want to make this case public and we want to do it quickly. You know, they don't do things for electoral purposes, or at least that's what they say. But it's pretty clear that they don't want this to last for a long time because, you know, again, this is my analysis, not, not in their words, but who knows what any of this looks like if he's president in a year and all of these cases are still going on. Yeah, and some of them are state level, which I got right. to put my law degree to use here, that his presidency isn't going to shield him from those cases, the state That's cases. Right. That's right. Um, he will, I think we can guarantee it, pardon himself for the federal cases and or order his own Justice Department to drop those cases. At that point, I think, you know, this is just my cards on the table. I think he's been pretty explicit about how things are going to be a little different this time around. Uh, I think like who, who the AG is and who the people around him, I think they're going to be a different, different quality. He's explicitly running on one of his platform to the degree that he has one, you know, planks is pardoning the protesters, the January 6th rioters who are, who yeah. are, you know, who've been in prison. The hostages, you mean? That's right. He calls yeah. them hostages. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, he talks openly about revenge and retribution. He's not going to, you're right. He's not exactly hiding the ball this time. We know what he's going to do. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, it's interesting is such a dumb word to use for this. It is a scary year. Uh, and I said this to uh, my colleague, Ricky, who kind of comes at this from the right. And I said to her, and she agreed, I think there's more of a risk for political violence this year than even 2020 into 2021. I think this is the, the greatest risk of political violence in our lifetime. And, uh, you know, people are just explicitly saying it. Well, and this is why I think. To go back to Biden, this is why he does keep talking about democracy, January 6th, not because he sees, I mean, obviously part of this is just plainly political, but it's also because he does want people to remember this isn't just a partisan election as he sees it. This is, you know, American democracy and, and whether we can disagree without actually having political violence, which is something that, you know, this country has seen before, but it had been hundreds of years since we'd seen it on the scale of January 6th, explicitly political violence. So, you know, he obviously sees this as a inflection point moment. Um, it remains to be seen whether the electorate does, but that's one of the cases that he's trying to make. Yeah. Well, Gabriel, thanks for joining us. Where can folks find your work other than in the pages of New York Magazine, which by the way, I've been saying this for a long time, I think currently has the championship belt among the sort of long form magazines. I think the New Yorker had it for a while. Then I think Atlantic was great for a while. And I love all these publications, but you know, New York Magazine has been on fire the past few years. So, <laughs> Thank you. you I'll, I'll relay that to my bosses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, New York Mag is definitely the place to find my work. That's that's the primary place. One, maybe I'll convince myself to start tweeting again one of these days. Oh, don't. Yeah, I'm, I only tweet about the bills, basically. Fair enough. Yeah, well, as a Jets fan, I'm, I'm definitely not going to pick that yeah, up. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> All right, Gabriel. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm excited to welcome back a guest we had on, I don't know, two years ago, uh, and I just jumped on her show, Bridget Fetisi, who is the host of Dumpster Fire and Walk-In's Welcome, uh, which was the show I was just recently on. She is a political eclectic if there ever was such a thing. So in many ways, I think our audience will relate to you, Bridget. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Always 
always a pleasure to banter and chat with you about the world. Yes. Well, before we go, uh, people who haven't heard from you in a bit on this show, just tell us a little bit about how you even got into this space at all as a media influencer. Oh, God. That makes me want to <laughs> grow <grosser>. myself. Gross. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly not intentionally. Um, no, I know. It's the worst. It's actually the worst title. I, yeah. It, I, I don't want to influence people. <laughs> I'm like an anti-influencer. I wonder how how much influence people really have. That's really a, a topic for discussion. But to answer your question, I kind of got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars is really the only way to explain it. I was living in Los Angeles. I got sober in 2013. I started tweeting to replace my addictions and got addicted to Twitter but I also found that I was trying to be a writer. Somebody had dared me to do comedy. So I had started doing stand-up comedy. And I really started to understand how Twitter could be useful as a place to just practice my sharp writing skills on topical stuff if I wanted to be like a late night writer, for instance. And I wound up meeting lots of editors. And then the first article I ever pitched was to Playboy because somebody said, oh, I should put you in touch with the Playboy online comedy writer. They're always looking for people. And I pitched this article in response to an article that had gone viral about, like, it was like a Vice article, Why I Don't Suck Dick was kind of the title, I think. And so I wrote, <laughs> I pitched one that was like in defense of blowjobs, <laughs> which is what makes my weird being in the kind of center-right media ecosystem even more hilarious. So that was the beginning. That was like the first freelance piece I had ever sold after years of trying to become a writer or get work as a writer. And then I started writing a weekly column for Playboy. And what I found was that I was born in 1978 and was drunk for most of the Bush and Obama years. And when I kind of lurched online in my little jalopy with my 90s mentality, the culture had shifted around me in ways that I did not understand. I didn't go to college, so I wasn't familiar with a lot of the kind of ideological critical theory that gets bandied about by the academics online, particularly of the left-wing variety. So I didn't know anything about queer theory and I didn't know anything about... I didn't know anything. I knew nothing. And I kept stepping on rakes on the left that were surprising to me. Like people on the left, younger women would kind of accuse me of internalized misogyny and all this like terminology I'd never heard. Tell me a little bit about the internalized misogyny. Like what what were they reacting to? Like for instance, for that first piece, I thought I was, I come from like 90s sexual empowerment, kind of being a slut is empowering, which, you know, I'm not sure I, <laughs> I have taken issue with very publicly now, but that was where I came from. And I kind of thought the people on the left would be, in agreement, women on the left, but there was a lot of pushback and people were saying, oh, this is just like 
you're just kind of an old lady who's internalized this misogynistic stance that you have to get on your knees and please a man. And it, it kind of took away my agency as a woman, my choice. It was all just like the patriarchy that I had internalized and, and these power structures. And I knew nothing about any of this. This is all this stuff that Americans have are starting to catch up on. I don't really, I'm not a huge fan of the term wokeness, but for lack of a better term, the idea that everything is a power structure and viewed through this lens of oppressor and oppressed, this was all new to me completely. So I was like, I mean, my editors used to joke that I was the biggest bro in the room when I was working at all these male magazines, it was a very strange time to be working for men's magazines, particularly Playboy, as they tried to redefine themselves and went non-nude for a minute. It was right in the heat of the Me Too era. Men were really kind of, they were taking some hits. <laughs> yep. And so... That was when um, I became aware of the culture wars in ways that I, I hadn't. And then Trump, you know, descended on that escalator and everyone lost their mind. And weird things were happening in comedy, too. So I happened to be at the crossroads of all of these different industries, like sex writing and sex and relationships, writing for that, and then also doing stand-up and seeing the kind of shifting alliances that were happening and the jokes you kind of not that you weren't allowed to tell them but there was so much low-hanging fruit to make fun of on the left that I felt like comedians were just not going after really and you started seeing these weird kind of splits even in comedy which is traditionally pretty you know everybody's it's like you're in the trenches together generally. So there started to be a weird break in comedy and comedians took on this kind of outsized, weird, like, oh, the comedians, they're the truth. I'm like, we're all pieces of shit. Like, can I swear? Sorry. <laughs> well, my, my favorite thing about the comedians, and I've been a defender of them, is that they do smuggle commentary in. In some cases, they're just making commentary. It's not even in the form of a joke. I think everybody should have a thick skin about all these things. But the thing I hate the most is when people are like, ah, I'm just telling a joke. And I'm like, well, okay, like own your opinions. Because a lot of these comedians are just straight up making arguments. But John Stewart pioneered this. You know, oh, for he, sure. he's yeah. the guy that pioneered the like, I'm making commentary and taking a point, point of view. And then it's like, oh, but I'm just kidding. And I'm completely guilty of this. I do this all the time because I'm actually not that informed and really don't know anything. I know some things, but I'm not like someone who's buried in policy and understands the day-to-day workings of Congress I'm and, and is obsessed with that stuff. I think I just like to poke fun at pretty low-hanging fruit in the culture. And I understand, I too am a defender of comedy, but I think you should defend your right to be hyperbolic as a comedian. You can't really do comedy without being somewhat hyperbolic. Instead of defending whatever the thing is that you're trying to joke about, because you can be ridiculous. Like you should be able to be ridiculous and say extremely ridiculous things as a comedian for a joke. And 
yeah, there was, I was just at the like weird, it was a weird time. And then I got like, I kept on stepping. I mean, it really was like a moron who got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars because I knew so little about them. I had always been, my family is liberal. I had always, always been surrounded by primarily liberal people with liberal opinions and more like Kennedy liberal, I think, more tra- traditional liberal, whatever that means. And and had lived in liberal enclaves. So I didn't know anything about conservative media. And I was upset with the way that feminists were talking about Melania and Ivanka. They were attacking like their high heels and the way they dressed. And I was like, guys, can we have some consistency? We just were talking about Hillary and her pantsuits and attacking women for what they're wearing. And I said I would write an article like that about the hypocrisy on the left and nobody would publish it. And then somebody said in my mentions, well, I'll publish it. And I was a freelance writer trying to make a living. So I was like, sweet, I sold a piece. And it was um, Ben Dominich at The Federalist at the time. And so I wrote it, again, not knowing anything about The Federalist and posted it. And people were like, oh, The Federalist, unfollowed. I can't believe you. (laughs) And that was really the beginning of like, what? I, I really was just so... I thought you could just, I was like, I'm a mercenary. I I need to make a living. You know, I'll write for anyone who will basically pay me. But things were, you know, that was 20, I think. That was in the Trump years when I wrote that. And then I kind of started just talking to people on the right wing and I turned down a lot of money. (laughs) And uh, because I still didn't consider myself, you know, of the right. And I had been attacked by these people for years working at Playboy, called a slut, pointed to as the reason that like America was collapsing. So even though there was this new like, oh, look at this shiny person who's taking issue at the left. I was like, I don't trust you guys either. I've seen the way you talk to women and me and anyone uh, who has birth control or whatever. (laughs) Like, So I felt very lost. and. And still feel a little bit lost in the culture war to a certain extent. But yeah, that that's really how I ended up in this very... I was a waitress for like freaking up until the moment I started... I was, you and AOC, you both came on the scene. I freaking from- get her. I was AOC. I was just older. But when <laughs> she... I've said this on Rogan. I was like, I was AOC in my 20s. I come... You're you're like hearing the plights of all of the average people at your bar. You're you get I I was in Rhode Island. I got two eighty nine an hour and was asked to like do all this cleaning and was totally exploited. And I get it. I don't have health insurance. I completely understand where she's coming from, even if I don't necessarily agree with some of her solutions to the problems. Now that I'm in my forties. Speaking of being in your 40s, you are a new mom. I am. I'm a geriatric Uh, mom. You have moved from the great state of California to the great state, the free state of Texas. (laughs) And and as part of that, you know, you and I were talking about this the other day. You're you're trying to figure out the schooling situation and you're you're just outside of Austin. And there's this piece uh, in the Washington Post 
titled Homeschoolers Dismantle State uh, Oversight. Now they fear pushback. And it's an interesting article. And we'll put in our show notes this episode we did a little while ago where we went into like big homeschooling trends where the Washington Post put together some really interesting data from 7,000 school districts and showed that there are there was a 51% increase in homeschoolers over the past six years. And it's far outpacing the growth in any other sector, including private school enrollment, which saw a 7% increase over that period of time. And uh, homeschooling now uh, is a larger sector than Catholic schools in this country. And it's quickly gaining ground on charters, uh, you know, the sort of world I come from, which are at 3.7 million students. And, you know, homeschooling somewhere between 1.9 million and 2.7 million. So it's a big and growing area for kids. And this article is all about, well, what is a proper homeschooling law? How much oversight should there be? Should we require standardized testing? Should the state go in and visit these families every now and then? Should we give families some percentage of the per pupil funds that they would have gotten if they stayed in the traditional school system. So it basically raises a lot of these questions. I mean, it's the Washington Post. So it, like, I think the criticism of the article is that it has an opinion about those things. But holding that aside, because I think we could, who cares what the Washington Post spin is? What do you think? Like, you're a parent now. I think you're kind of warm to the idea of homeschooling. What should the laws look like? Yeah, I've always been warm to the idea of homeschooling because I was so bored in school. And I feel like I have a lot of friends who were homeschooled and I I see the pluses and minuses as I've kind of grown up and heard from them. And I do think, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of parents had the opportunity to actually sit in on their kids' curriculums and they're like, what are you learning? What what are they teaching you? What aren't they teaching you? What is going on in a way that they have never had access? You send your kid to school and hope they're learning something, and and then uh, yeah, I don't, I think that maybe people started realizing that they could join some kind of pod and perhaps do a better or a same the same job. I've really always been really interested in education. I come from, weirdly, when I was in my 20s, I started working with autistic kids and I was an aide. They were looking for people who weren't trained in this kind of behavioral model because they were doing this sunrise method, which is much more, they found that artists were actually more successful. People who were creative were more successful at this method because it meant joining the child kind of where they were at as opposed to training them like some kind of, you know, dog or doing this kind of, here's a reward for being sitting in your chair. And that was an interesting glimpse into the way that the, because a lot of these kids, they were so extreme, they couldn't be in class. So they, they did have access and had to like, And it was insane what these poor parents have to do to even get the money to educate their kids and get AIDS and try it. And they would band together and we would have little pods and the kids would kind of learn something, whatever they could learn at their ability. So that was that was really interesting in looking at the way public schools handle this stuff, because a lot of the time I was an aide sitting with them in different public schools versus how parents were handling this 
where their kids just weren't getting what they needed from a traditional education. And I felt like the system was really broken. I felt like, I mean, truly the most valuable thing I learned in high school was probably typing. Now that I'm done with high school, that was probably the thing, the class I took that has had the most real life impact in all of those years that I was in school. And I'm a big believer in learning that I that sense. I think there's an Estonian proverb that's the work will teach you how to do it. So I, I, I'm a very big believer in unless you need to be kind of specialized, a doctor or an engineer where there's something more technical. I'm not sure that this push to go th- learn the way we are all supposed to learn is effective when people maybe would benefit more from following their interest in farming or in a trade or for at a much younger age than we're giving them the opportunity to do that. So I think that's the benefit of homeschool is I remember I was in New Zealand and I was staying with this family and they had two kids who were they were homeschooling. They were from America and they kind of left the whole American thing and went to go live in New Zealand and they worked remotely. This was in 2013. So long time ago. And their kids were learning Mandarin online. And they, they, these kids were incredible. They, just, they were so far ahead of any kids I knew who were their age. They took them traveling. One of the things I would love to do as a mom is in her kind of wily teen years, just be like, all right, put a backpack on. We're traveling around the world for a year. And we're going to go volunteer and woof. Woofing for people who don't know is kind of a way you can travel. You can go work on organic farms in exchange for room and board. Um, I think part of the like the interesting trade offs are when the kids are really young. Number one, if we're being honest, parents just want to get the heck away from their kids, so they want to, they want the childcare as much as anything. They're of like, course. okay, they're just like, all right, I want somewhere to to drop my kid off. The second thing is that the amount of effort it takes to keep a kid engaged when they're really young is a lot different than the effort that goes on later when they're a little bit more self-directed. And so I think in those early years, it's really hard unless you don't have a job to create an environment. And even if you do have a job, like it's definitely, you have to know something about what it means to keep a kid engaged. Never mind the content side of things, which is as easy as it's ever been given the explosion of content online. So that's like the early days stuff, which is like for the homeschool parents who want to homeschool kids earlier, that's a trade-off. And then the socialization trade-off, right? Like you need some version, whether it's the pods or some alternative way to get the kids interacting with other kids, especially in this environment where the neighborhood and customs and risk-taking are just kind of broken, right? Like their kids aren't going out and playing with other kids in any way near the numbers that you and I would take for granted. So that's in the early years. I think as the kids get older, when they get more self-directed, there's a lot more opportunity, right? Like a kid can go on Khan Academy or whatever. Now the question is the accountability and motivation and all that. They're still teenagers. So you need to like figure out like, how do I find the right balance of ensuring the kids do enough mm-hmm. to allowing them to like explore what they're interested in. And each parent needs to make a different determination as to like what that balance is, right? Like how much accountability do you want and need and all of that? But then the same social pressures exist, right? Which is like kids want prom, they want sports, they want to date, 
they want to meet new people and all this kind of stuff. And so I think the combination of all those things, I think creates an interesting trade-off because if you take that all together and then you, you, what you have to do is compare it to what exists, not, not the utopia, right? So if you live in a neighborhood where the school is broken and it's unsafe and the kid is afraid to go there either because of bullying or other violence and the, there's not a lot of learning happening, then homeschooling looks really good. If that school is like super shiny and like got a lot of extracurricular activities and AP courses and, and a really interesting model about how kids get regular classroom instruction and then personalized learning and all that, you start, then it starts to look like a much better sell, right? But I do, I do think those trade-offs are real. Like I actually think on both sides of the equation are really interesting questions. Yeah, the socialization thing is interesting. I've always joked I don't want my kid to be like one of those weird homeschooling kids. And I do think I saw, I had a friend who went into homeschool and she then went to like a university, uh, like just a public university for college and went bananas, just went crazy. Like just had no, like hadn't really been exposed to partying, hadn't been been exposed to saying yes and no to these things in an environment where you still have parents. And so just went bananas, got like three DUIs in the first year of college. It was something oh crazy. God. But again, those are these are some of the things you can't predict, but also some of these trade-offs. And at the younger age too, I mean, this is, I think, what Montessori does so well is they really meet you where you are and rise to the level of the child's, you know, engagement and ability. Not necessarily you should be here and we're going to put you with a bunch of other kids who are here. I think the pods are very helpful. As for like state oversight, I'm not sure how I, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't, because in Europe, don't they have like bans on homeschooling because? This country also had bans for most of the existence of homeschooling. And and each state, like the-, the So the you can't like to... indoctrinate your kid into a cult, right? Is it, what, what is well, that's the part reasoning of the issue. behind this? There was an Ohio family that, basically was creating a little Nazi school for their kids, uh, uh, Ohio couple. And the state basically was, said they were powerless to stop them. I think there are two, there, there are a couple of different issues here. One is the regulation has to be smart. Like, like whatever the goal is, the solution has to some way resemble, in my opinion, like something that you could conceivably get to the bottom of it. Right. And I think the, the article raises an interesting question that the homeschooling movement is dealing with right now, which is whether to accept vouchers. Because you would think before reading this article, oh, like, yeah, everybody's going to take that 8,500. They're going to want that. But what the homeschooling movement is saying, some of them, the leaders, is they may not want this money in places like Florida, which has a 20,000 homeschool pilot right now where the kids, I think, are getting something like $8,500, is that they they don't want the regulation that comes Right, with that. the strings attached. Which I, like, first, as a taxpayer without kids, I'm not sure I want to be handing over checks to families just because they had kids. <laughs> so it's like, I always think we think of, like, the well-intentioned But parent. don't you do that anyway? Well, at least they have to do something with it. Like, the, the thing that worries me a bit, and when we did our homeschooling segment, we looked at some TikToks of homeschooling kids where they're like, basically, the parents are just having them do chores, right? Now, and right. they're not really educating them at all. So, like, let's say, I always like to think of, and the, the people who are homeschool advocates hate me for this because they always say it's edge cases, but I grew up in a neighborhood where there are a lot of bad parents. So like, let's just say, and they're also parents with substance abuse problems or whatever. So like, let's say you get, you have 10 kids 
you get $8,500 a kid. That's $85,000. Now, what, like, what's to say that you're not an ill-intentioned person who's just going to pull that money in and spend very little of it on the education of your kids? That's an area where I would say regulation makes some sense. But it's isn't like, this like some of the bad incentives for having kids in the welfare system too? Can't, can't you yeah. make the argument that that incentivizes having lots of kids and being single and where does that money go? I was in a state-funded rehab and I saw a lot of that in Minneapolis. Yeah, I think like when it comes to welfare, to me, I view it as establishing a floor and the thing is, it doesn't take away from like, let's, the thing I have with homeschooling is the incentive. Yes, there's a fiscal issue. If you believe that this leads to waste or whatever, that was the debate of the nineties with homeschooling, there's this added incentive, which is to pull your kid out of the traditional system. And so that's where I start to get a little nervous where I'm like, all right, well, there's the financial incentive and there's more dollars at work here than there ever has been in the welfare system, right? Like $8,500 per kid. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. So to say that you have the fiscal issue to begin with, but then you also have the incentive then to pull your kid out of the system and try to profit off of that. That makes me start to wonder whether this is a great idea or not. Stipulating for the fact that I want parents to have a ton of autonomy to do reasonable things to educate their kids. So I, I, I believe in the existence of homeschooling. Um, I don't want to create mean, meaningless regulation, but I would want to prevent that incentive. But then wouldn't they be regulated? So wouldn't there be oversight if they were taking that money? Yeah, I think if there's money. But the debate is how much regulation. Like a lot of these states, there's this push or pull going on between the homeschooling advocates and the school choice advocates, which I'm kind of within that camp, which is people who want- The dollars generally to follow warm, the kid. Yeah, generally warm to that idea. You'd think we'd be bedfellows, and in many ways we are. But I think in this case- the article makes an interesting point, which is that people like me are a little bit more warm to accountability measures when it comes to handing over dollars. So we're kind of, it, this is not true of all school choice advocates because right-wing school choice advocates don't want any of that really, or a lot of them don't. I've had a lot of them on the show. We've debated it. But by and large, I when, when they're taxpayer dollars at issue, I want to know what those dollars are going to by and large. I don't like blank checks like that. Uh, especially when it involves an incentive to pull a kid out of the school district. There's a, a whole separate question. So they do raise an interesting tension, and this is playing out in state houses. The, the second thing they talk about, which is something we talked about when we did this segment, is child welfare, right? Yeah, that's I, I was what I worry form- about. Yeah, I was a former school principal. The school is where you find out where a kid was abused. Or yeah. I know in some cases there are neighbors and stuff, but if you live in the right area, nobody will ever see the kid. And I know that edge cases shouldn't, dictate all of law, but they do mention this case in Michigan where two children's bodies uh, were found in the deep freezer of the mother's house in their homeschool. I mean, do you read People magazine, which has just become a magazine about stories of basically all the children being abused in America? It's horrific. Yeah. And and like, look, I don't, I don't want to feed a moral panic, but I do know from my experience that kids get abused. I've had to report many parents uh, through my school system yeah, I don't think it's a moral panic to to say that. And I also think what we saw during the pandemic and lockdowns, and one of the reasons that I was so fiercely against lockdowns was a rise in child abuse because you didn't have the people who were reporting or even able to see what was going on. Yeah. I mean, that's real. I mean, spousal abuse too, mm-hmm. although I think that was many factored. 
Yeah, so I think here's the thing. I actually think there's a lot of good that's going to come from this. We, we profiled some districts in Florida where parents were coming together. I think homeschooling alone can only do so much. But I think the idea of parents coming together to create alternative modes of educating kids through the flexibility that homeschooling allows is going to be a very powerful driver, what you call the pods. There was this uh, HBO show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called the, um, I think it's called the 100-foot wave. It's about big wave surfers who go to Nazare, Portugal, but this guy, Garrett McNamara, who's like the, one of the most famous big wave surfers ever, they profile him in like season three or something, or season two or three, whatever the most recent season was, where he was in Hawaii and he was stuck in Hawaii. He couldn't fly to Nazare or anywhere else. And he and the other sort of big wave surfers in his little neighborhood created this amazing community school on their own. Mm. And it's almost like a, like a mini charter, right? It's why I like charters. It's like a, a non-technocratic version of charters. And to a person, everybody I know who saw this, whether they had opinions about schools or not, was like, that's where I would want my kid to go to school. It right. was a beautiful place where they all took responsibility over their kids. I'm sounding like a hippie here. It was almost like a kibbutz school. If you've ever been to Israel, like the kibbutzniks. And that kind of stuff I want to see more of. And it's going to be messy. There's going to be a ton of stupid stuff and parents are going to get it wrong and all of that. But I believe in the power of parents at the smallest levels, especially when they come together and they specialize to create really awesome models. But what if you have these kind of like doomsdayers who get together and, you know, tell their kids the world is ending and they're teaching this them? This is the most interesting area of law. What is, and this actually crosses in an interesting way. Let me try to thread this needle. The left, so if I'm coming at this from a regular regulation happy way, right? I'm kind of a little bit more friendly into regulation. And the left tends to support child welfare advocates, regulation on homeschooling, yada, 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 under the premise that parents can't be fully trusted to make the decisions for their kids, right? That's one assumption. What I find interesting is the sort of anti-trans bills that are making their way through some of these legislatures around parents not, not allowing parents to do surgeries, like what happened in Ohio recently with the veto override, but even like other things around decisions parents make around Yeah, I've the been trans world. fascinated with this too. So it, it, both sides, they strategically adopt an assumption that parents can't be trusted to make all the decisions for their kids, but but they don't fully own it, right? right? Neither side wants to fully own that presumption. I'm on record, and I want to do it again here, for believing that presumption as a general matter. Now, in, in the specifics, it, it gets messy, but I do think that there, I, maybe it's my experience as a school principal. And again, I have right. parents from my, my, my old schools who listen to this. Most of them are amazing, but the ones who aren't need people to step in between them and their kids. And this is the hardest area of law because if you overdo it, you can ruin a kid's life. If you underdo it, you could ruin a kid's life. The presumption is that the parent is usually right. And that I don't mean to attack that presumption at all, but I do want some space between a parent and kids every now and then. School has generally occupied that space. And if we get rid of school, I'm a little worried, you know? Yeah, this gets into this thing that I have a real hard time getting my mind around, which is like when you identify and the school keeps it from the parents. And yes, I'm like, that seems strange <laughs> to me. Well, especially absent an abuse allegation, right? Right. Like, let's say the kid comes in and says, I identify a certain way and my parent 
has threatened to beat me if I did that or whatever. And they have some credible reason to do that. Now, that independent of the trans issue should create a protected series of information. I think you can make it almost content neutral, right? So not so as to make it politically acceptable to everybody who has issues with that particular question. The problem is if the kid doesn't make that claim and there's no credible reason to think the parent would commit any violence, not sharing that information with a parent gets really tricky. It seems very strange to keep secrets from parents. Yeah, the question is, as a school, is how do you set a policy on any of that? My general feeling, I'm like a live and let live type of person myself. The question is, when the parents are involved, what do you have to share with them? Generally speaking, our, our assumption as a school is we share anything the parents want to know. Now, that doesn't mean we are calling them every day saying, you know what, Jack has a new girlfriend, right? So the question is, like, what do you decide is a relevant piece of information? And if a kid decides they want to go by a different pronoun, does that automatically trigger a call home? This is why people are homeschooling their kids, though. It's like, this is, it, it seems so wild because from this perspective, it seems like, oh, what could possibly go wrong? But if you look in certain states where the law is a set, laws are, are kind of geared towards, well, you go to a, you go to a counselor tell them that you don't feel safe at home because you want to identify as whatever, whatever it is. And now suddenly you're like, the state can take your kid. I'm not sure. I can see kind of the fear that parents have. Yeah. I'm actually, now that we're talking about this, I don't know. Uh, Like, I honestly don't know. And I I think parents have a right, and we operate our schools this way, to know basically anything about their kids that happens within the school setting. I think the exception is, again, if they take advantage of professional services. But even then, the very act of taking advantage of professional services, if it's a minor, the parent ostensibly, I think, would sign off on that. And you can make it part of the deal, right? Which is like, look, if your, your kid's taking advantage of counseling by the professional norms of counseling, that means that there are things that they will be saying that we don't have access to including the school, by the way, often the, the counselors come in from outside. Um, it's different when the kid is, is, is in class. And, and the, the thing that I think a lot of people react to is if the school is actively concealing it for the parent without any semblance of an argument that the parent is going to abuse the child, right? So it's just like, hey, like we, the, the kid says they don't want their parent to know or the parent's going to react a certain way, but there's no allegation that any violence is going to follow I think the schools are on very shaky ground keeping information from parents. Yeah, it's it's such a weird... So another thing that popped into my mind when you were talking, when we're talking about this and like the weird shifting school dynamics is this, and where the right and the left are suddenly meeting is this um, kind of anti-vaxxer movement. So a lot yeah. of people don't are starting to homeschool their kids because they don't want to have to give them the vaccines. And I love that the right thinks that they start. I'm like, we had measles outbreaks in LA like years ago, guys. Right. Yeah. So that, that like weird overlap of the, the kind of new right and the old hippie left. I mean, this is the RFK junior overlap, right? Which is why so many of those people are into him. And it's, I find that fascinating. And actually, the, the, there is a dead-on overlap with homeschooling there, right? Oh, yeah, and there definitely. Was, yeah, 
Yeah, and I think this is what's an interesting, when I talked to Bethany McLean uh, the other day, she talked about this being the legacy of the COVID vaccine politics is that, you know, there's a big debate about the mandates over the COVID vaccine and all that. I definitely don't want to revisit those. But one thing for (laughs) sure is that now parents are refusing what I think are, in my opinion, should be obvious yes vaccines. Definitely, I wrote about this. Yeah, we have to require people. Like, and I know people hate this. It's the state usurping their power, yada, yada, yada. But look, like, this is how the world works. Like, if you, if I want to drive across the Verrazano Bridge, I got to pay a toll, right? It's just how the world works. There are very few people who are free of any government, the tentacles of government in any way, and you have to decide what's in the collective interest. And in th- this case, I think, like, some of these vaccines, you just have to have a critical mass for the public health mechanisms to work. And the idea that we'll start having, you know, outbreaks of diseases that have been kept at bay for like a century is really scary, you know, especially if you're a parent. I mean, I get, I get it. Um, I get, I get the fear, but I had the fear kind of instilled in me before I had children. So I was in, when I was back to that rehab I was in, I was in with a woman who swears that like the vaccine's basically killed her child. And she was, and I can't remember all the details of what she said, but that was, it was something that just stuck out to me when I was 19. Then I entered into very shortly thereafter, entered into the world of um, working with kids with autism. And this was like the height of Jenny McCarthy and all that. Right. And I was immersed with, I was surrounded by women who are doing these like key, the like, what is it called when you try to get removed these really crazy treatments on their kids to try and remove the heavy metals and all of this stuff. And so I kind of immersed myself in all of that science. And it was around then that the scientists were really thoroughly debunking this at the time that I was in this world. And I was interested to see what was happening in the COVID stuff because I knew this was it would trickle into other vaccines. You know, I would love to actually see what the numbers are now because I do think this does fuel people going home. Because when I look at the what you need for schools, we do have a lot more vaccines that are required now than we had like when you and I were kids. It's actually insane. And some of them, even now looking back, I'm like, did she really need Hep B or is that like, why would she need that unless I was addicted to drugs? Yeah, I don't know enough to be dangerous on this one. So I'm going to- Well, it's one of those questions where I'm like, decline. why would she need yeah. that kind of looking back? But, you know, measles, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I don't want her to get measles. I think the this is like the benefit of, because we've gotten rid of so many of these diseases, people don't know how bad they were. You know, during the polio vaccine trials, I think like, I can't remember the exact number, but a certain number of children died and people were still so afraid of polio that they lined up to give their, because it was a contaminated batch of the vaccine and they still lined up to give their kids the vaccine even after. And obviously we've learned a lot about how to test the efficacy of these vaccines since then. Yeah. Uh, You know, that that would never happen again. But can you imagine if it did now? I mean, it it would be crazy. (laughs) Uh, You know, you never say never, but under the current regulations, that would be next to it possible. 
unless the disease were killing 25% of the American population and you needed to roll it out fast and you just had to make a cost benefit analysis to say, all right, well, if we risk killing 5% of people who get this vaccine, but 25% of people are going to die. I mean, let's just hope we never live in that world. Other than that, like people are relatively careful about this. But I do understand the pushback. Like I have young adults relatives in college and they had to get like constantly get these COVID. I'm like, they all had COVID. They're young, they're healthy. They beat it. And you still need to get a vaccine to go back to school, a COVID booster, which I actually think you should, that should be optional for these kids. Well, I think everybody's, most people I know are there now. I don't know if the schools are though. The reckoning I think is going to come or it's coming, like where people need to kind of come together on this pandemic stuff, or maybe not, just move on and be like, all right, well, where should we have drawn the line? And who is wronged by our decision to draw it in one direction or the other, right? Like, did people lose their jobs? Did businesses go under? Although a lot of them got so much assistance that, you know, at least depending on where you are, you might've been fine. Uh, I know some businesses that really... That, that don't exist anymore because of our shutdowns. And I think we need to really, it's almost like a truth and reconciliation commission, but I don't think our society is capable of it because there are too many people with too many axes to grind and too much ego involved in the outcome. Whereas I think most people should say, all right, let me in a non-judgmental way, which is really hard when there's amount of hardship and injustice that I think happened during the pandemic, to say, look, let me in a, with a clear mind look back on this and say, what should we have done? And is there anybody who was irreparably harmed because of it? I just don't think we're capable of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating kind of post pandemic fallout with the school, the homeschool stuff. I do think whatever trends were in motion, which I think a lot of them already were, they were rapidly accelerated after 2020 when people did make it work and I see in Texas, there's pretty loose regulation. You just kind of have to like show the, someone has to be kind of organized and show the grades and you can kind of do what you want. But it seems like there's a lot of these hybrid pods. So it's kind of, they go to like a school at a church. They'll kind of rent a space where the kids all go to school and the parents will take either turns being in charge that day or some people will kind of lead lead the charge and and then half of the week they're at home it's so it's like an interesting solution to kind of what you were talking yep. about you know part socialization and structure part getting what they need at home and following their their interests i too am fascinated with how much because i'm definitely not in the never you should never have any power over parents in regards right. to their kids because I too, being in, you know, working with children, saw things that, and being being around, yeah, I mean, even my own upbringing, like people should have probably stepped in. The thing is, kids are defenseless mm. and adults like any other population, have an evenly distributed amount, uh, you know, like anybody else of, not evenly, but there is a distribution of sociopaths, psychopaths, addicts, negligent people, amazing people, 
conscientious people. And the thing about kids is that if you, in some cases, you could just check in with the state and say, I will now be homeschooling Ravi for the rest of his existence. If you live somewhere where that kid doesn't interact with anybody after that, there's nothing to say that there's not something horrible happening to that kid. Right. And I know people will be like, that's like an edge case or whatever, but society needs checks to say whether somebody has gone missing or not, or whether somebody is in harm's way or being abused and all that. And we need them particularly for kids because adults usually have a job they don't show up to. They have taxes they don't pay. They have rent they don't pay. So somebody's going to bust through their door. But kids can disappear in the sort of in the system. Oh, yeah. If you don't have a check. That was like during the pandemic, something like a million kids never logged in. There's some crazy number of like this, these lost kids where there was a principal somewhere where he went around to every person in the district that didn't log in to check on the welfare of these kids because they had to take care of a dying family member. They had to take care of their siblings while their parents still worked. They joined a gang. Like it it was, it's actually crazy that lost generation of, of kids that again, like you say, who's checking on these people if they disappear. Yeah. How would you even know? Yeah. Well, on that sunny note, Bridget, we were going to talk about independent contractors, but we're out of time. So we'll save that sexy topic for the next time you join us. But thanks for being with us. This was like, I think it's the beginning of a larger conversation. Like what what are parents' rights? What are kids' rights? I think it's such an interesting topic. I do too. Where can people find your work? Uh, you can just go to fetasy.com, P-H-E-T-A-S-Y.com. Everything is there. Or you can go to my YouTube backslash, uh, forward slash fetasy. Uh, most of our stuff is there as well. But honestly, everything, you can find me at Bridget Fetasy on Instagram and Twitter. But everything, everything, all of my work is really lives on fetasy.com. All right. Well, thank you, Bridget. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Those five-star ratings really matter to us. And remember, we don't really ask you for, we don't run any advertising at this moment or ask you for anything other than your kind words on the internet. Uh, And you can leave a voicemail, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. Thank you very much, everybody. Everybody.